Finally, welcome back to the Video Essay Podcast. My name is Will DeGravio, and I am the host of this podcast, which, as you may know by now, features conversations with leading critics, scholars, filmmakers, and other creators about the craft of videographic criticism. It has been a while. I hope you're all doing well out there, um, or as well as, you know, one can be in these wild, crazy scary times. My guest on today's show is Scout Tafoya, who you may also know as Honor Zombie. Scout is one of the most prolific video essay creators um, out there today. He's also a contributor to a variety of publications, uh, including RogerEbert.com. Had a really wonderful, long, in-depth conversation with Scout that I'm excited to share with you. But first, I think just a a little personal note is in order. Um, As some of you may know if you follow the show, I was, or I guess I currently am, um, a graduate student in film and screen studies at the University of Cambridge, pursuing an MPhil, and I am recording this at home uh, in my basement in Plymouth, Massachusetts. Um, so that should give you a pretty good indicator of where I'm at right now. I left the UK, I guess, indefinitely forever. Um, Cambridge, like you know, most colleges and universities throughout the world, is you know continuing with studies remotely via the internet. So yeah, here I am. You know, it's a minor inconvenience amidst you know you know it's a minor inconvenience and a very tragic situation for many people. So I'm I'm very lucky that I'm healthy and that my family's healthy and, and everything. But, you know, still, you know, pretty disappointed that, you know, my studies ended that way. But what, what can you do? Um, you know, there's a lot worse things in the world right now. So, you know, as but the show goes on um, and, you know, just kind of packing up my life in Cambridge and moving back here, finishing up work, getting adjusted and, you know, just the onslaught of horrible news has made being productive uh, pretty hard, as I'm, as I'm sure many of you can relate. So I do apologize for the, the long delay and in, in getting a new episode out there into the world. But here we are, and I'm hoping to get back on that two episodes a month schedule. That is the the plan, but, you know, bear with me. I also just want to extend a big thank you to uh, the listeners, the, the many listeners who responded to my call for feedback and ideas. It is greatly appreciated. Um, one of the first things you will notice about this episode is that it is a long one. Some of the feedback that I got was that you know, I, I asked folks, you know, do you think the show length is good? Do you like think the episode should be shorter or longer? And several of you responded and said that you wanted to have a longer show, which I'm all for. Um, and I figured, you know, in this in this current moment where we're all at home uh, trying to to pass the time, why not put out a a longer episode. And I had a really great long conversation with Scout that I think you'll all really enjoy. But again, I'm still looking for feedback. So if you, you know, if even if you said you want a longer episode and now you're saying, whoa, whoa, this is this is too long, um, you know, please um please let me know what you think. I was so adamant about trying to keep the episode short, short, short that maybe what I'll do is at some point if I have the time and uh, ability, uh, go back through old episodes and kind of find different questions or answers that didn't make it into the episode. And maybe we'll do like a, a compilation uh, bonus episode because I think in hindsight, I made some episodes too short, but I guess that's all. It's all part of the learning game. But like I said, please, please continue to send me email. Um, it's just willdegravio at gmail.com or reach me on Twitter at willdegravio. That's W-I-L-L-D-I-G-R-A-V as in Victor, I-O. Um, you know, one of the things that keeps me going with this show is 
interacting with listeners on 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 social media or or over email. Uh, many of you will send me the video essays that you're making, and I and I love watching them and try to respond to everything that I get. That is why I do this. It's to a build community, but b and this is perhaps even you know, the most important element or reason why I do the show is I like feeling like I'm part of a community. So that, that really keeps me going. So please, please continue to to send me emails and messages or, or whatever. Um, it really makes it all worth it. Now, one suggestion that I received uh, for a future episode of the show came from Ariel Avasar, who is a scholar at Tel Aviv University. Um, you will remember Ariel from a couple episodes ago when he uh, Grace Lee and I discussed what it was like co-editing the most recent Sight and Sound poll of the best video essays of 2019. Uh, and Ariel emailed me with a really great suggestion, and that was that perhaps on the show I could assign additional homework, um, and we could all begin making short little videos together. And one of the assignments he suggested was making our way through the curriculum of the scholarship and sound and image workshop, which is for those who are not familiar, it's a two week program at Middlebury college run by Jason Mattel, Christian Keithley and Catherine Grant, where uh, scholars uh, go to learn the technical skills in theory necessary to create videographic criticism. I was lucky enough to be the teaching assistant at the most recent iteration of the workshop last summer. And the throughout the first week of the program, uh, Jason and Chris assign all sorts of small videographic assignments that they created along with Katie um, to kind of get people adjusted to making videographic work. And then Katie flies over from the UK for, for week two. And the three of them sort of serve as advisors to all of the scholars in the second group in during the second week of the program where they use all of the skills they developed in those mini exercises to begin work on a video essay of their own. And so per Ariel's suggestion, I figured why not go through those exercises together on this show? And so I'm going to give you a piece of additional homework, and that will be to make a video essay of your own. And what we'll do is we'll start with the first videographic exercise that participants at the Middlebury Scholarship and Sounds and Image Workshop are expected to make. Now, to assign you this homework, I'm going to quote directly from a book that was published about the workshop and also videographic criticism, pedagogy, theory um, by Chris Keithley, Jason Mattel, and Catherine Grant called The Videographic Essay, Criticism in Sound and Image, which was published by Caboose Books in 2019. Actually, that was the the second edition was published um, in 2019. The first edition was published in 2016. The great thing about this resource is that not only was it published by a book, but it is actually available on a free Scalar website. Uh, You can visit it at at videographicessay.org and all of the links to these to the book, to the to the website, will be available at thevideoessay.com. But allow me to read you Jason, Chris, and Katie's description of videographic Pecha now. Quote, the first assignment is a new form of videographic expression that we invented for the first workshop, the videographic Pecha A typical Pecha is an oral presentation format that has strict parameters for the timing of slides. 20 slides lasting exactly 20 seconds each autoplaying, resulting in a presentation lasting precisely 6 minutes and 40 seconds. The concept behind such strict but arbitrary presentational parameters is to force presenters to adhere to a rapid pace of a 
quote, lightning talk, while creating a uniform rhythm for visual methods. The effect is that every Pecha Kucha feels similar on one level, but allows for great creative variation within this uniform rhythm and structure, end quote. Now, the videographic Pecha Kucha, on the other hand, is comprised of 10 video clips that are exactly six seconds each. So... For those like me who are not so good at math, that is one minute total. Now for this assignment, what I want you to do is find one film or one episode of a television show, just one media object. Get a file, upload it to Adobe Premiere, Final Cut Pro, iMovie, you know, whatever floats your boat, whatever editing software you have, and find and find 10 video clips of precisely six seconds each and line them all up in a row. Just line them all up in a row, however you want, doesn't matter, totally up to you, whatever clips you want. And then what I want you to do is find one minute of audio to go underneath, I say underneath because that is the, you know, the structure of Adobe Premiere, but one minute of video to accompany your images. So we're going to have, so we're going to have 10 six second clips all in a row, no transitions, nothing fancy, just line them up and then have one minute of continuous audio from somewhere in the film or television show, right? So your video should be precisely one minute long. That's all I'm going to tell you. Go out there and create. Now, now, typically at the videographic workshop, you know, we don't, they don't show examples. They just want people to go and create what they want. But because I'm not there to answer questions and Jason, Chris, and Katie aren't there, there will be a few examples of Pecha Kuchas on our website, videoessay.com for you to kind of get a sense of what we're looking for. Now, what I want you to do is after you make your Pecha Kucha, please upload it to YouTube or Vimeo or some platform where people will be able to share it. I mean, YouTube and Vimeo are ideal. And then please send me the link of your Pecha Kucha. And what I'll do is I'll curate all of them at thevideoessay.com. I'll make a new page, I'll put them all together. It will look beautiful, crisp, clean. And that way we can all watch each other's Pecha Kuchas. Um, if you've never made a video essay before, this is the perfect excuse and opportunity to kind of make something really quick. I, I promise it's not too complicated at all if you just have basic familiarity with editing software. Um, I think it could be super fun. So the deadline for this homework, let's say the deadline for you to send me uh, your completed Pecha Kuchas. Hmm, I'm looking at a calendar right now. All right, well, I, my plan is to release uh, the next episode of the podcast on Monday, April 27th. So let's say that you'll send me your Pecha Kuchas by Saturday, April 25th. All right, just send me them anytime, April 25th. I won't put a time zone or anything on that. So that way I have the following Sunday to kind of assemble all the clips, do my thing, and then kind of offer maybe a little bit of a little bit of commentary, exciting commentary before I release the podcast on the 27th. Does that sound good? So make your Pecha Kucha by Saturday, 25th. And like I said, all of the credit in the world, of course, goes to Jason, Chris, and Katie. Um, and they're so generous in making all of these materials available for free online. So again, this is, I don't mean to in any way, um, you know, suggest that this is, you know, really my idea. It was a suggestion from Ariel to borrow the exercises developed by Chris, Jason, and Katie. So, and again, links to all of those materials will be available at thevideoessay.com. And now here's our conversation with Scout Tafoya. And now we come to the interview portion of our show where I'm sitting down here with the one and only Scout Tafoya. Uh, when I started this podcast, I had a list of people 
who I wanted to talk to about this kind of work, people who I never met before. And Scout was definitely uh, at the top of that list. Uh, and we, Scout and I exchanged emails a little bit when the Sight and Sound poll was coming up. And I was like, you got to come on the podcast. And Scout is finally here. Welcome. <laughs> Thanks for having me. That's hugely flattering. <laughs> Thank you. We have the honor zombie here in person. That's um, right. That's right. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, I think, you know, I think if if anyone is even a casual follower of the video essay world, they'll know you, they'll know your work, they'll, maybe they follow you on Twitter. But I think one of the cool things about the show is that we really get to dive in deep into your background and like really get to know you. So the question I ask pretty much everyone is like, what is your... What is your origin story? Like, what got you interested in, in, in kind of making this type of videographic work uh, yourself? I've been writing about it, f- about film for a very long time, and I'd been making film for a couple of years uh, when I believe it was in early 2013. Matt Zeller Seitz was um, uh, talking about Matteo Garone's, uh, Garone's uh, reality, which had, uh, just had its US premiere. And that was a film I really enjoyed. And so we were talking about that. He checked my Twitter bio and then went to my Vimeo page and watched uh, the trailer for a zombie movie I had made, um, which was my attempt to remake the last picture show as a horror film. (laughs) Um, to, you know, that sounds awesome. <laughs> I, I, I think it's good. <laughs> it's, it's a very strange movie, but it's very like endemic of the kind of stuff that I make where it starts with a very broad premise and then sort of hones in on the sort of uh, micro of, of human interaction and behavior and uh, emotion. So he saw the trailer for that and he said, well, you know, I think he liked basically the way that I used music and uh, soundscape I, I have to assume anyway because there isn't that much in the uh, in the trailer and he asked me to pitch him video essay ideas for Roger Ebert because he had just taken on the position as editor-in-chief um, Roger was still alive at that point but he was taking a step back from the website and they were going to open it up into what it's since become I was one of the first people like one of the first sort of like outside contractors that Matt brought on to be a full-time contributor um, and I'm still like, you know, deeply, deeply indebted to him for that. And it's still like one of those things that's a little nuts that you consider the sort of degrees of separation from Roger Ebert, who to m- many people the world over is, you know, a synecdoche for criticism. He is criticism personified to be on that website every month with a new video essay and sometimes the new review is still just an, an unending privilege. And it's been one of the great joys of my life that you can tell people that you do something and, and, and mention that name. And there's a twinge of recognition, at least, you know, everybody, I, I feel like, especially now that the gig economy is out of control and capitalism has turned into a, turned us into a living dystopia, that it's very easy for people to just go places and say that you do things like, what do you do? It's like, Oh, I'm a, I'm a, you know, an art critic or whatever. And it's like, oh, I'm sure you are. <laughs> You know, everybody, everybody with a with a, you know, a blog or or like a couple of YouTube videos or whatever. It's very easy to just pass yourself off as an expert because nobody's going to do the research to figure out you, who if you are who you say you are. Nobody has the time. But to be able to say Roger Ebert to people, it's like, oh, that means something. And that like brought me that has brought me so much of the like acclaim and recognition. You know, what what little benefit I've had from being a critic comes from having been on that website. You know, my like highest profile fans and supporters and stuff are all people who found me there. Um, 
So I, I'm, I will always be indebted to Matt Zeller sites and just always love him enormously for giving me that opportunity. I would, I would love to talk to him at some point as well, but I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about what was the site looking for in, in video essays at that, at that time? Like, like what, what did they see? Cause obviously that must've been at a time when they were trying, as you say, kind of launching and trying to build the site. So what did they think? Um, and obviously you can't get inside Matt's brain, but for, what's your sense of what, what did they think that video essays could kind of, I guess, put up on like do for the website right I, I think matt was looking for diversity of content i think he wanted as much stuff from as many kinds of people as possible um you know the site was famous or semi-famous for the far-flung correspondence which was a um a series that Roger kept up on his site wherein he had critics from mexico and south korea and poland and canada writing to him about the movies they liked and he gave them a platform and some of those people have become some of my best friends i think matt wanted to keep that tradition up that he wanted to open the doors to RogerEbert.com to people who had stories and he says this all the time that they couldn't sell elsewhere you know he, the, your craziest and most personal pitch basically he wanted to do when it came to the video essay stuff i think he just wanted to know that people were experimenting and doing cool things with the form because he himself was a video essayist and he was sort of running out of time to do it. He's done them less and less. Um, probably if I you know, had to guess, what he wanted was to make sure that people were still going to be sort of formally experimenting with film and also bringing people's attention to the things that you can't just get from writing. It's again, it's the editing is the most important thing. It's 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 the whole story with a video essay. It's not like filmmaking where you can sort of get everything out of a long take. The takes, the, the, you know, the footage is already there. It's about what you do with it now. It's it's you know truly the editor's medium. You have to be able to create meaning from somebody else's moving images. Um, and I think you know, based on the other people that he's hired to do this stuff and encouraged to make video essays. That that was my best guess. Because the first thing that I did for them was a piece on different years of the Cannes Film Festival and what they said about the direction that film grammar was headed internationally and sort of using them as a quorum on, on, on where diction or, you know, sort of uh, uh, cinematic handwriting was, was headed. We, we did 1960 in two parts to talk about sort of birth of modernism because you've got the very, very staid, um, not to say uh, unproductive or not useful or not beautiful, uh, studio filmmaking, uh, people like Vincente Minnelli. Um, and there's a great Chinese movie called The Enchanting Shadow. And they're these gorgeous, just these rapturous uh, studio films. Um, and then on top of that, uh, you know, right across the quasette was La Dolce Vita and La Aventura. And it was like, boom, that's the future of film. So it was really cool to sort of put those together to see the difference in that and what, you know, where, where film was headed. Um, and then we did 68, where which was famously canceled because of the protests, because they fired um, Henri Langlois from Cinémathèque Francaise and just sort of the things that got swept under the rug while Godard and Truffaut were having this very performative protest. And to talk about, I mean, by that point, film grammar had like advanced to a crazy place, you know, to, to, to look in the eight ensuing years between La Ventura winning the Grand Prix or the special prize that they gave it. And 1968, it was just, it was, you know, it, it, it's so radical how different the entire con lineup was. Uh, and then I jumped way the hell ahead. I was going to do 97 because that was the last year before digital um, cinema entered the, the con competition, 1998. Um, Vinterberg's The Celebration shows up. 
So I was kind of interested in that, but I liked the lineup better in 97. So I was going to talk about like the last year that it was all film, but I didn't get around to it. And I was also going to do 79 because Apocalypse Now and Tin Drum uh, split the prize. And those are two of my favorite films. Um, but I, I only got around to doing 2010. We ran out of time before the actual con Film Festival that year in 2013. And then after that, I did one about the, a very specific Dolly shot, um, which I think he liked for its sort of uh, termite quality, which was shots where the camera is directly parallel to somebody as they move and moves with them. I'd always been sort of hypnotized by that um, technique. So I did something on that. And then the you know, that's that's the, the third idea I brought to him was The Unloved. And he liked it. And he asked me if I wanted to make it a series. And then uh, and we were off to the races. Here you're talking, the, the way that you talk about film, it's clear that you are a cinephile and that your knowledge is incredible, which I think helps explain why you are so prolific. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm wondering, like, how how do you stay so prolific. I I have in front of me a tweet that you tweeted on from December 24th, 2019, that in the last year you made three feature films, wrote 33 features, reviews, and interviews, and wrote and edited 68 video essays, which you say is a personal record. And I think there are plenty of people who are as knowledgeable about film, I'm sure, but not as many people who are able to translate that into a body of work that is as extensive as yours. So what is your creative process like? Like, like take us into kind of the nuts and bolts about uh, of, of your production of videographic work. Yeah, the prolific thing is always funny because like, as I describe the work to people, sometimes it does sound like like nuts. It just sounds like too much stuff. But it was, it's, I don't know, it was one of those things where like part of it, I think was, and actually, you know, funnily enough, having reviewed the Sonic the Hedgehog movie this morning, like being in, in high school and college and seeing so many of my friends playing video games, there was this like weird, like, like one upmanship thing to like, like wanting to do something more productive with myself and not always knowing what that was, where like, I don't know, like part of it came from that sort of, you know, very, very high schooly like uh, <laughs> superiority complex where you just want to be the smartest kid in the room. And so I just like wanted to always have something to show for my work and I always wanted to learn. And so I just like, I don't know, when I started writing sort of uh, uh, nonfiction or sort of creative nonfiction in at the end of high school as a way to sort of sustain myself um, so that I wasn't just like, I like the idea of being bored, like... I hated that as a kid. I hated it so much. I just never wanted to feel that way. So there's like always going to be something to do. And so now when I watch movies, I get to actually enjoy them because like I'm taking time out from doing all of this stuff. But there's also a sense that I just like always want to consume images and, and film and history. There's just there's always something that I haven't seen. And there's always fun to be had seeing what somebody else has done because you never know when an idea originated or anything like that. So moving into the, the video essay thing, I... You know, I start making them for Ebert and then I sort of start trying to pitch around and I realize that it's just like it's a terrible marketplace for video essays. It's like extremely difficult to pitch them places because the thing that I tell everybody is nobody knows how much they cost, but everybody knows they're expensive. And so I cycled through like every outlet I could find. I did a sort of a joint video essay interview with Terrence Davies for the playlist. That was the only time I contributed to them. I'd love to do more because Rodrigo Perez, I love him so much. He's just such a nice man and like like a really, really helpful editor and just like a good person that I'm happy to know. Um, and then I went to Fandor and Kevin B. Lee, who like Matt Zeller's sites, is like the, you know, the sort of the father of the modern video essay as we know it. Obviously, you go further back and you find Chris Marker and Harun Faroki and blah, blah, blah. But Matt and Kevin sort of brought it into the 21st century. And then so I worked with Kevin at Fandor for as long as he was working there. But Fandor 
you know, they screwed all of us. They deleted all of our content and uh, got rid of all of our stats, which sucked because like I, I had no way to prove how popular the videos were as a way to like, you know, talk myself into the next job opportunity. But working with Kevin was like the best. He had the best feedback. He was so attuned to the needs of the form and what people get from video essays like that. He's just so smart. You know, and then I tried unsuccessfully for the next like two years to try to find a home for the pieces and I couldn't do it. So finally, I was like, fuck it, I'm just going to go to Patreon because I have too many ideas and they're not going anywhere. And the more that I pitch them to places and get them denied, the less enthusiasm I have for them. You know, once I set myself up in this place where I had these very specific um, series that I wanted to do, which was Danger Mouse for the oddball Disney movies, Other West for like weirdo westerns, Murderers Row for character actors. And for movie, I set up a series called Anaphora that I hope they let me keep doing. I don't know how good the numbers were on that. So, but whatever. I always like working for Danny Kasman at movie too. So, uh, so once I had the perimeters, I was just like, I kept wanting to just keep making them because I have these long lists of films that I want to explore. And every time I go on to like the Amazon Prime streaming library and see some other weird thing I'd never heard of, like it goes on the list. So, you know, I still have series ideas that I haven't been able to like put together yet just because I don't have time. Like I'd love to do a thing about found footage horror. Like, I don't know, maybe that's a better book idea than a video essay idea or something like that. That's the other thing too. The fun thing with video essays is you can you can make them whatever you want. There's like that's you know, it's still the ink is still very like wet on what a video essay can be. You know, where it's like it's one of the youngest art forms. It's still we can, it could be anything, you know, and, and the things that I think people fall back on tend to be the most basic definitions of what a video essay can be. I mean, you look at like so much of the YouTube criticism, there are great people doing really, really interesting work. I'm thinking like that three-part series on The Hobbit um, and the, the things that it did to the New Zealand film industry, like that was fascinating. And so, you know, there are people out there doing good work, but it's also just like so easy for people to like put together 17 shots of trunks being opened in Tarantino films. And it's like, it's the economy in every way defaults to the same seven topics because everyone is afraid of not making their money back now on critical whatever, um, which is terrifying. Like we've squeezed out niche writing in, in, a, in a really, really uh, disheartening way. Um, you know, unless you're talking about Paul Thomas Anderson or Stanley Kubrick or the Coen brothers or something, I just feel like people's like, you know, their eyes roll back in their head because they just, it's, you know, I don't know, people... People like to talk about the things that they know. And it's, you know, I, I've, I've been a bartender for almost a decade now. And I know that when people come in here and they find out that you're interested in movies, they want to talk about the movies they've seen. They don't necessarily want recommendations for a new, you know, Senegalese or, you know, <laughs> uh, Argentine movie. Every time they sit down, they want to know what you thought of, a, you know, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood or whatever superhero movie is in the fucking theaters that week. And it's, you know, I get it, certainly. It's you can't expect everybody to have the same sort of omnivorous taste. But it's also like, if all we do is talk in circles about the same topics, then we're never going to grow and the discourse is going to go beyond that, which is why with the series, I just I want to keep going because there's so much stuff that I don't get to talk about anywhere else. I can go on Twitter all day long and talk about, you know, whatever, the Westerns of Hugo Fregonese, but like leaving behind the actual work and really treating every single film as seriously as if it were, you know, whatever thing is just one best picture. 
you know, that's, that's not something that everybody gets to do. And you actually get to show them the images too. Like it's one thing to talk about it, but it's another thing to be like, look, at look, here it is. And that like, that is so intoxicating to finish the product and know that you've sort of left people a blueprint for, you know, how to appreciate this movie or rather, you know, sort of find the things that are most compelling about it to, to craft that argument. Like I, you know, usually what I do is I find a movie and I like love it. And so I'll immediately convert, you know, the, the funny thing, the workflow of video essays is like the one thing that I can't quite make people understand. I mean, like I, you know, it's not super complicated. It's just funny how tedious it is. You get the movie, you got to download it. You then you convert it to the usable file format. So you can put it into final cut pro. You got to write your essay. You got to record your essay. You got to plug it into the three different, you know, converter Johns to get it into the new MacBook, which I saved up for like a year to buy. Um, and then, you know, everything's got to be converted. You got to use the WAV files and the MOV file and then everything in the timeline. And then you can go. But you have to make sure that you put the file format that you're going to use dominantly on the timeline first because Final Cut instantly takes on the, you know, the uh, the parameters of whatever the first file on the timeline is. And if you don't do that, you got to start the project over. It's it's just funny. So yeah, usually I just see, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll like, I have things in mind that I know that I want to talk about. I've been like, I've been trying to get through this series on Tony Scott for like the last two years. <laughs> um, not because of lack of interest, there's just other stuff keeps coming up. But, you know, sit down, watch the movie, take notes. As soon as I have what I know is, a, you know, a complete enough 500, 600, 700 word narration, then I can stop the movie or I can keep watching it and then start working on it. You know, got to do my voiceover on this, you know, microphone and then uh, and then get to work. If I have everything ready to go, you know, if I have every file I need and I have the voiceover recorded, I can get it done in like... I don't know, anywhere from an hour and a half to three hours. But sometimes you get halfway through and you realize you're missing something and then you got to find that and then you're on the internet and then you get distracted. And it's, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. There's just like, there's always been something else that I wanted to say. And there's always some other movie that I want to recommend or even better, you see a bad movie and it's got a lesson in it that you you like know you can pull out of it and, and sort of alert people to that stuff. Lately, I've been doing these essays about sort of specificity in in grammar and storytelling, which has been really cool. Um, just to like really give people like an actual window into how you're processing things. Like I have so many conversations with people that come in and they're like, you know, they come into the bar and like, oh, do you, you know, oh, you like movies, blah, blah, what do you think of this one? It's like, well, I didn't like it. Like, why not? It's so good. The script is this. I was like, yeah, but I don't really care about the script because the script isn't the movie. The movie is the images. And they like, you know, have a hard time with that. So like actually putting that in the images and explaining myself was like deeply cathartic. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, that's, you know, there's, there's no secret to it. I don't sleep super well, but that's, I don't know anybody who does. So <laughs> thank you for, for, for sharing all that. I mean, I think I can see like now that you've switched to Patreon, like you have more freedom, but are you finding like, are you, are you, fi has your, has your audience come to you or is that something that's still like a work in progress? Oh, it, and it's, it's, it will always be a work in progress. Basically like I, I, when I started, I got a couple of the people who I like, who had found me on Ebert's site or wherever else on Twitter. Um, and they, you know, the, the thing that's like been really cool is, is to see those guys come for as long as they can afford to, because it's not, it's, it's a, it is a luxury to support somebody on Patreon. It is not a normal cost. It's not food. So the idea that people, even for a couple of weeks or months or however long they did it, donated to the thing like that's 
so heartening to know that that was important enough to them to at least give it a shot. Like I had my, my, uh, one of my like longest supporters, a guy named Adrian Alderete for two months, he donated like a hundred dollars to the Patreon just because he liked the work. Like I, that was like the best Christmas gift I've ever received. Like I couldn't believe that. Um, that was like that. That was generosity of a sort that I just I, ugh, it like it really breaks your heart. Like it's it's astonishing to be so supported. And like I try all the time, and that's part of the reason. Also, I think that I don't ever stop making things is because I know that people have taken energy and money away from their lives to engage with this work. And so I owe it to these people to constantly give them new work to engage with, and also to show them that I am grateful for the support. Uh, last October, um, Patton Oswald very, very graciously had Patreon fly me to this summit they were having so that he could interview me on stage for their live stream. And wow, I know I like, it was, yeah, I like, what, what was the event? Like it was, disc- a, it was just like a Patreon, uh, um, uh, like a, like a summit, like a, just a sort of a, a like a, a day to, to, to let the world know what Patreon does for people. Um, and they asked Patton who he wanted to talk to. And because he's the nicest man in the world, he said me. Um, and, and so leading up to the event, I decided to do something that I thought was like, like a cool challenging thing, which was that every day for October, I was going to do a video essay on a different horror film. Um, and that was something that like, I kind of said it before I knew exactly how much work it was going to be. Um, and then like, you know, when I realized it and realized like, oh yeah, every goddamn day you need another one of these. Like I'd be, I'd be between interviews. <laughs> like I'd be interviewing, I, I, they sent me to interview like, um, uh, Cornelio Parambuya and like, uh, uh, Pietro Marcello, uh, in the same day. And so I interview one of them and then I sit in a Starbucks and I edit the video essay for two hours and then I go back and then I interview the other one. Like it was nonstop work <laughs> to get, I did one every single wow. day. Wow. Was, that's thank a, you. That's thank incredible. You. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then like, you know, I was, I, I talked a big game about like then taking some time off and I wasn't as prolific for the next two months, but like, I've basically gotten right back into the same rhythm of releasing things fairly regularly just because I don't, I don't, I don't want to take the support, you know, financial and otherwise for granted for even a minute, you know, it's, it's a little exhausting to constantly think like, oh, there's this audience that needs your stuff at the time, but it's like, no, 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 I created the, the the demand by introducing the concept that it exists. So this is like, and it is a privilege to be able to get to do this stuff and to be paid for it. Like, honestly, without Patreon, I, I don't know what I would have done. Like it has been the most important financial help. Um, it's, uh, it's been, it's been astonishingly helpful. Um, and that's the thing is that, you know, the, the, I'm still, I'm still strapped to the market to a degree because I, you know, there, there are months like you notice the sort of the, the view counts and stuff like that. I try to do things like specifically just for Patreon. Um, and like, I know that some of them are watching it, but I think also there's a degree to which people support me because it's, it's a thing they want to do more than they need the new video essay every week, you know, um, which, you know, I'm equally grateful for that too. Uh, you know, I, um, my, my buddy Clint Worthington, he runs a site called The Spool. And for that, I did an essay for them, like a written essay on uh, the movie Dead Man, the Jim Jarmusch film. And it reminded me that I wanted to do a video essay on Dead Man. And I thought, well, that's like a little bit oversaturating. So I just made the video essay for my for my Patreon, just Patreon exclusive. And like, I don't know, like 20, 
20 views or something like that on that for the 60s or so people who donate. And like, you know, that's fine. It's, you know, giving giving money to the thing also means that you get to ignore whatever you want to. Um, but that's, you know, so it's I think it's 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 nice to know that giving things to the public doesn't you know necessarily take the luster off the uh, of the Patreon exclusive stuff. Um, because again, you know, there's also a part of this where you have to constantly be building this uh, sort of personal brand, which sucks. Like it really is like the worst thing in the world to constantly have to be advertising yourself because, you know, every time you see something on social media, you're like, oh, I just did an essay on that. Let me link to it. And then you're sort of just this like, you know, just this constant sort of minor bird of your own achievements. And that like that can get tedious so quickly and you just feel like awful sometimes. But other times it's like, well, you know, I did the work, so you might as well talk about it because, you know, but it's also, you know, as with making the, the fiction films, it's interesting. It's still pretty difficult to get people to sit down to watch something, even if it is only 10 minutes. You know, Matt, when I started doing The Unloved, he had a rule that basically like five to seven minutes was the sweet spot. Any more than that, and you're kind of asking too much from people. And for the most part, I was good about that for a couple of years. And then like, you know, you, you sort of have these major life events that sort of give you more to talk about, more than you thought you had. And so you're making 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 minute video essays sometimes. And it's like, yeah, it's a little excessive, but there was a lot to say. <laughs> um but yeah, you know, that's the, that's the interesting thing. My, uh, one of my dearest friends in the world, um, uh, Tucker Johnson, he's my, um, uh, he, he shoots a lot of my fiction stuff. Like he was my director of photography from way back. We met in college and we started shooting stuff together right away. We just like, our sense of humor was like identical because we were, both grew up watching the Simpsons. Um, and, uh, that like the thing we, we would, we would like, we would make these incredibly serious, very, very austere art films that I was like super passionate about. And then we would make like 10 minute, like fucking screwing around like comedy videos. And those get like thousands of views in the first minute they were online and the movies are just sitting there and we're both like, God damn it. <laughs> it's always funny. No, but sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, no, sorry. Well, I, it's speaking of kind of this tension between videos that you can edit, you know, in two hour intervals in a Starbucks versus kind of more long term projects. I think it'd be a good time to transition to kind of diving deep into one of your video essays, which it's the length of a feature film. It is probably if, you know, on this show, we use the term video essay pretty liberally. And, but I think this is also definitely like an essay film. And I'm probably going to not pronounce the title correctly, but it's a. I don't, I, I was never very good at Latin. Um, I've been calling it Beata Virgo Viscera, but I guess Viscera is probably the thing because it's, that's the word in English. But I always said Beata because I went to, I went to college with a girl named Beata. <laughs> that just always sounded nicer. I, I, yeah, I took Latin for two days. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm no expert. This is the point where I remind our faithful listeners that Scout's full film is not only available on Vimeo, but it, is, it will be embedded at thevideoessay.com, uh, which is, of course, our website. And what's better than a wonderful free film right there available for viewing so you have no excuse to not watch it? Um, how did you come up with the concept? And just talk a little bit about, because it's so personal, you know, it feels so personal that there there must be there must be a, there must be some type of story behind it. I'd be eager to know it. So it's a number of things. Um, it's uh, so like the sort of the earliest like kind of origin part of it is when I was a kid. My 
my dad used to buy the VHS tapes of episodes of Mystery Science Theater 3000. And among those were movies by a guy named Coleman Francis. And he's like Misty's know that he made Red Zone Cuba um, or Night Train to Mundo Fine and the Skydivers, as well as the Beast of Yucca Flats with uh, Swedish wrestler Tor Johnson, who was, of course, famous for working with uh, Ed Wood. But I was transfixed by the bleakness of his movies. You could see it even through the commentary. You know what I mean? They're even taken, they're struck by just the, the, the depressive quality of these films. It's not like like a Corman movie, which was all about this sort of stiff upper lip science versus, you know, chaos kind of a thing. Um, you know, the early Roger Corman movies, they're, they're very, they're easy to understand. The Coleman Francis movies don't fit into any kind of a, a framework. They're independent movies like like we understand them post like 1985, post like Eagle Pennell, where it's sad people going about lives they don't like, like just sort of begrudgingly carrying on. There's one of the jokes in the Mystery Science Theater thing is one of them calls it Jim Jarmusch's scenes from a marriage when they're like breaking up over dinner. And I was like, God, that's so odd. Like what was going on with this guy? When I was uh, just getting into... Um, like professional criticism. Like I was, I had just been doing the essays for, for Ebert. And I think I had maybe reviewed Burning Bush, uh, the Agnieszka Holland miniseries, which I love, but I like, I hadn't sort of, I hadn't written for anybody else. I wasn't, I, I wasn't, I wasn't published anywhere. And then there was a rep screening of Douglas Sirk's The Tarnished Angels. Um, and I wanted to write about that movie because I downloaded it because um, like so much Cirque, you couldn't find it anywhere. It was all just stuff you found online. Or if you were lucky enough to have like, you know, a DVR or a TiVo and Turner Classic Movies, you could watch some of them. Like I bought the 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 criterions of uh, Written on the Winds and uh, All That Heaven Allows and Magnificent Obsession. But I don't I mean, to this day, I think it's possible that Tarnished Angels isn't. Uh, oh, there you go. There it is. Fucking love it. A magnificent Obsession. <laughs> I'm holding up the copy of Magnificent Obsession, which I actually just wrote a uh, review of. It's recently released on the Criterion Collection. No, I didn't write it for Criterion as much as I wish, but great, great film. Sorry to cut you off, but I, I couldn't I couldn't resist. It's sitting right here next to me. <laughs> no, 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 it's fine. Yeah, no, that's it's sitting right there. That's so like I yeah, I love the Douglas Sirk stuff. And then to see him work in black and white, I was like, oh, OK, something else is going on here because he like he took the color like a like a fish to water. And and to see him go back to black and white, which was obviously how he started in, in Germany in the uh, I want to say the late 20s was like, OK, what is he saying here? So I watched The Turn of Angels and I was just blown away. That's one of the great movies about America. And I watched that again and I was like, oh, it's just, it's like the skydivers. It's like Coleman Francis is the skydivers, but good. <laughs> and I like, I thought about that. I was like, all right, well, what else sort of fits the the theme of that? These sort of depressive movies about people who operate at low, low level airports and rural airports and like what that says. And I found a couple of more that sort of fit right into it. Obviously, there's only Angels Have Wings, which is a little different because it's not set in America. But that's based on airmail by John Ford. Um, and so I was just like, I don't know, there was a tradition of this stuff of of the sort of sad lives of people who are used to uh, flying to escape from their problems that essentially the, the land can't hold them. They belong in the air, um, to quote Bill Pullman in Independence Day. <laughs> And uh, so I, I I pitched a piece to uh, Filmmaker Magazine 
uh, Vadim Rizov uh, told me that they don't really publish criticism there, so I should try uh, the L magazine, which at the time was uh, was still in operation uh, and edited by uh, my friend Mark Ash, who I had never met before. So I pitched him the piece. He said it was too long, but he would take a capsule review of the Tarnished Angels, and then I got on their repertory list, and so that sort of started me on my path to writing professionally, was, was having more than one out- outlet to write for. And more than one, you know, sort of uh, audience to think about. So that was that was a very important step for me was giving him that piece. But I held on to the idea. I wrote this very long piece about, you know, about flyers, and I, 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 I never felt okay giving it up for some reason. I like I didn't know why, but I wanted to hold on to it for as long as I could until I found the perfect outlet for it. And then, you know, years into my career as a air quotes career as a video essayist, um, I decided, you know, why not try to make something of that because in in the meantime also i also discovered a lot of regional um horror filmmakers some of them i had known for a very long time like david friedman and herschel gordon lewis but some of them were newer to me a guy named william griff griffe or grief i don't i don't know exactly how to pronounce the name but he was floridian and um and he made schlock movies and later i believe he made porn um but the interesting thing that I started noticing in his movies, he's got these long scenes of guys just kind of out in the bayou on like fan boats and stuff like that. And I was like, gosh, you don't see a lot of rural America from that period in major studio movies because they're all shot indoors. They're all shot in Burbank. Um, so then I started collecting bits of just like regular life um, from B movies Um psyched by the 4d witch and uh the kiss of her flesh and other wonderfully lurid titles like that but i always loved these movies um one of my like first loves was a, a, a horror film review website called 1000 you spent hours and counting and i would read all of his reviews a guy who calls himself el santo and then i would watch all of them and just i it was just uh, I've, I've always loved horror and and genre and uh you know just so it it, it was instructive i think to find a use for these movies other than on their own merits, which can be, of course, deeply rewarding to watch something like the movies of Jack Hill, Pit Stop or The Big Birdcage, and just enjoy how gleefully grotesque they are. But to actually sort of find an academic use for them, it's like, look, this is what Central Florida looked like in the 60s. You know, here's what here's a hotel in Ohio that they rented for the weekend to shoot this movie. You know, like, here's New York. Here's an actual New York streets in Doris Wishman movies. Um, and so I built myself this little library of, of unadorned American street scenes. Um, and I was like, you know, sort of, I didn't know what I was going to do with it. But then I realized it's the, it's the counterpoint to all the flying. It's, this is what they were getting away from. And so... And I was like, oh, that's perfect. And then sometime in the middle of all this, I was listening to um, Renaissance uh, chamber music. The piece I really like called O Magnum Mysterium, which was uh, arranged at some point by a composer named Giovanni Gabrielli. And I sort of picked apart the lyrics to that one. And at some point he talks about the blessed womb of the Virgin. And, and that just sort of was like the sort of sign that I needed that this was a movie to have Beata Virgo Viscera, a, a blessed Viscera, it's supposed to be insides or, you know, guts or womb. Um, and then Virgo Virgin. I was like, oh, that's it. So it's like, this is the, the Virgin land of America. And they're sort of trying to be reborn into the sky. Um, and, uh, and so then it was just a matter of making sure that I hit all the points that I needed to, and also had sort of, um, 
punctuation for everything and to let everything breathe. I wanted it to have the same impact that watching Martin Scorsese's um, My Voyage to Italy had. I, the, his documentaries with Kent Jones are so rewarding, but more than that, the sound design was perfect. I was a kid and it was played on TCM. I was on vacation in Ocean City, New Jersey. And it was on TV late one night and just hearing Martin Scorsese just whisper over these images. I was like, I was, I was hypnotized and I wanted to do something that was like that. So that was my, that was my, my goal was to make something that sort of struck me in the same way that that did. You've given me so much to work with there. I love getting into this stuff. It's fascinating to me that this began as a written piece because one of the things that we talk about on the show, and I think we're definitely going to talk about it when we talk about our, our next piece, is you don't want to just give an illustrated lecture, right? Like you don't want to say like here are a bunch of ideas, here are a bunch of you know ideas and concepts that I wrote down. I'm going to read it over and just like put accompanying clips over them and say that I'm done. Um, there's definitely a lot of that out there, and I think that is not videographic or does not embody any of the artfulness of the form. But yours is not anyway like that. Like if I'm being honest, I never would have guessed in a million years that it was originally like based on a written essay. Cause you know how sometimes you can tell, you know, that it was. Um, so when I realized that I was going to be making it into a, a video, I went back and I adapted it slightly because there's a way, there's a way to turn a sentence into like a, this is, a, this is an imperfect metaphor, but it's kind of like if your piece is a fish, you need to have something that will draw or no, maybe well, this is a fish metaphor in here somewhere. You have to turn the thing into a hook, essentially. You need to turn the sentence in your narration into a hook. And there's a way to do it that basically you say something and it qualifies what you're seeing and what you will see. You need to end a sentence in a way that your viewer has that sentiment in their head as they're seeing the thing that's about to happen. And that's, I mean, I like to think that I've gotten good at it, but who knows? <laughs> but that's the thing that I had to go back and do is make sure that, that that everything had a certain poetic character, essentially, that it wasn't simply that I was telling people something. It was that, it, you know, like I, I, you know, with the, the tone thing you're talking about, the Scorsese thing, I, I wanted it, I wanted it to sound like, like I was having a sort of a rueful conversation with somebody very early in the morning and that they necessarily like they didn't necessarily have the ability to 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 say something back to me that i wanted it to be i don't know you're like <laughs> do you ever watch um any of the 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 john frankenheimer uh iceman cometh adaptation from 72 i think there's the it starts wonderfully as the play does obviously where it's this bar room and it's filled with sleeping drunks and slowly the camera finds the people that it's going to be dealing with for the duration of the next conversation, which because it's O'Neill is forever. But I just kind of like the idea of you're in a place and it's all quiet and it's all normal. And then suddenly in the corner, you sort of hear this thing. And I just kind of wanted, I wanted it to be the kind of thing that you would like slowly want to get closer to. Like the, if it was interesting enough, you would draw yourself closer to the arguments to hear what was being said. You know, there's, there's a certain amount of when you're doing something like this, where you're making connections between movies that, you know, sort of only have as much to do with each other as, you know, the images of planes, there's a certain amount of conjecture 
you know, about what people were feeling and what people were going through. You can do as much research as you want to, but there's always going to be a little bit of guesswork. And I wanted it to be that you would hear the music and the sound design and the, and the, and the voiceover and sort of you, you would want to be drawn in. Um, you know, I wanted it to be productive and engrossing sort of enticing conjecture. Well, that's really interesting because I do think there is something, there are these like little moments that sometimes that you don't explicitly draw our attention to. And one part I noticed was in talking about um, Frankenheimer's relationship with RFK, and then you bring in Hitchcock for like three seconds because you're talking about how RFK was with Frankenheimer when the um, Democratic primary results were coming in. He was forced to kind of go to the Ambassador Hotel because the press didn't want to go all the way out to Frankenheimer's home. And it's there that he's killed. And within this whole film about flying or whatever, you show the clip of Cary Grant in North by Northwest. And he's walking into the Ambassador Hotel and the Ambassador Hotel is like in the background. Like you could easily, if you weren't looking, you would miss it. And I don't have any take on that moment of yours other than like it brought me into the into the piece in a way that I was like, wow, I understand the worldview that you are presenting in, in the world that you're trying to create here and this interconnectedness. And, and yeah, go ahead. I can see you nodding. Yeah. That was sort of when I knew I had the, the RFK thing when I was watching the Gypsy Mods. The funny thing, the Gypsy Mods was a movie that if you watch TCM um, uh, in the early 2000s, they used to run a... Uh, like a, a thing they shot at the time of the filming of the Gypsy Mods, a behind the scenes promo that presumably ran as a newsreel, as a coming attraction, essentially. And I saw that thing uh, a dozen times, you know, when I was a teenager. And then, but I never saw the movie because TCM never ran the Gypsy Mods. So I was like, why is that? Why do they have access to this thing, but they never showed the movie? So I finally downloaded the damn thing because I was like getting into Frankenheimer. I watched Seconds and I was like, this is awesome. What is, why do we not talk about him more? And I watched the Gypsy Mods. And then, I was like reading into that period in John Frankenheimer's life. And I was like, this is such a strange film because it's so old fashioned in a lot of ways. And after he had made seconds, I was like, why are you doing this? Like you're, you know, you, you sort of, you have America's number. Like, why are you making this kind of like folksy sort of, uh, you know, to kill a mockingbird kind of thing. And then I then I read the RFK thing and I was like, oh fuck, that's why. Cause this is your, this is this, cause Burt Lancaster is, is Bobby Kennedy. I was like, fuck, that's it. And that was the, that was when I had the piece. I was like, that's 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 my whole piece. I had three movies. I had Skydivers, I had Tarnished Angels, and I had Gypsy Moths. I was like, you don't need anything else. And then when the piece got rejected, I like I just I held on to that. I was like, this is it's too good not to use. And as I start looking for clips of things, I realized how much of the sort of subtext of that stuff had embedded itself in my brain because when I went looking for the Ambassador Hotel, I somehow knew instinctively that it was in North by Northwest. And I don't remember having acknowledged that at any point. I was just like. Oh yeah, it's 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 the scene of him, you know, coming back from the the airfield, and of course there's the famous plane in North by Northwest, and I was like, that's these movies are all speaking to each other in this very strange cabalistic way, you know, because they're all the majors, the major directors. I mean, you know, Frankenheimer maybe less so on a sort of reputation level, but he wasn't much less talented than Hitchcock or Ford or Hawks, you know. It was it was something to the idea that every one of these guys had something to say about flying and what a seductive and strange thing it was, especially when they kept going back to the depression, when they had nothing, you know, to fly during the depression was like to perform magic. It was like the second coming of Jesus or something. You know, it was, it was how people took their minds off of the fact that they had nothing. They had, they had dirt like everybody. And I was just like something about 
the president and Cary Grant and this sort of like mythic man that was destroyed in all these things. I mean, in Great Walter, Walter Pepper, it's Robert Redford, who's, of course, you know, the second coming of Cary Grant in America, you know, and again, you know, he just drifts off. It's just this, this irreconcilable thing where up there you can't live, but up there they must. You know, once you start seeing the way that art talks to, you know, itself, it's it's really difficult to shut that off. And I just kept collecting these you know, signifiers and images and, and snippets of conversation. And, so, you know, by the time I was editing it, it, it made all the sense in the world to me. But yeah, that, you know, and again, using the, uh, the Johnny Greenwood piece to open it, that I knew I knew I needed that. And it was funny, too, because I forgot what piece it was. In my head, I, I started editing it in my head about a year before I ever started working on it. And the whole time I'm hearing this, that sort of lilting, descending um, violin uh, song, the, the opening the opening tune. And I'm like, what is that song? I know I know that song. And I searched for it forever in my own fucking music <laughs> and then finally found it. I was like, oh, of course. It's from the score to Norwegian Wood, um, which is a great film. If you haven't seen that, you should. Um, and so it was just one of those things where it was like everything fell exactly where it was supposed to. And it just sort of, you know, it was like fugue state editing. It was, when it was done, it was exactly what it needed to be. That's fascinating. Well, I encourage everyone to please go watch the film. And I, I mean, we can talk about it forever. And I'm sure there's there are still things that you're discovering about it. It's, it's this has been fun because I this is the first time anybody's like interviewed me about it. Um, and uh, it's it's you know it was it was like not to not to like oversell it. Like it's it was it was kind of my life's work because I've been working on it since I was a kid in a way, which is like with all the Coleman Francis stuff and like the mystery science theater thing and how important that was to my cinephilia and my understanding of movies. Um, and, it, you know, now that it's done, I'm like very pleased with it. And I don't feel, you know, I, it's one of the few like film releases that I think got exactly the attention I hoped it would. Um, a lot of these things, I release them online and there's just nothing. Nobody cares because there's just so much else to do. And it's, again, extremely difficult to get people to sit down and watch something. But like the few people that I showed it to, like really, really took to it in a in a very encouraging way. Like I when I when I went to the Patreon summit in uh, in October, Patton mentioned it again. He said that he like really liked it. And he's like, is there any way to show it? I'm like, probably not legally, but like, you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, I, th I think there is like, I mean, there are, I know of other found footage films that are, that screen in, in a similar way. I'm sure, like, I was going to ask that. Have you, have you submitted it to any festivals or it just has only existed online? Nah, it's always yeah. been an online thing. I mean, those that, you know, the thing was, it was so important to me that I didn't want to hold on to it and like wait for the perfect release for it because I, I like I just felt like I would have to get a lawyer if I wanted to actually show it anywhere. But like I'm very, very, very proud of that movie. And I, you know, I, if anybody wants to show it, <laughs> you know, get at me. We can see what we can do. Well, you found footage um, filmmakers you know, out there who are listening. Why yeah, not? Exactly. Let's tell me what the fair use thing is. Yeah. Tom Anderson, if you're listening. <laughs> Let's transition now to talking about the piece that you selected for us to talk about, which I'm super happy you did. Um, so why, I'm gonna, why don't I turn it over to you and ask you to to introduce it and perhaps just give us an explanation as to why you found it, I assume, compelling on, on some level, but I guess just like worthy of discussion. What excites you enough to want to talk to it about it with me <laughs> on this podcast? <laughs> so this was um, a, 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 an essay that Matt zeller Seitz and Kim Morgan put together for Press Play. It's, uh, I guess the official title is Deep Focus, Mike Figgis' Stormy Monday, as reviewed by Roger Ebert. And when Matt was still the editor-in-chief of Press Play, which was the video essay blog um, that was attributed, uh, associated with, um, I want to say Slant, Slant Magazine, um, and the house next door, 
uh, Matt took Roger's review of Stormy Monday and he had Kim Morgan read it. Kim Morgan lately of co-writing Guillermo del Toro's newest movie, which is a remake of a film whose title now escapes me. But it's a Tyrone Power movie. It's a carnival film. Regardless, Nightmare Alley, Nightmare Alley. This is back when Kim was more mostly a film writer. Um, she's since expanded and uh, spread her wings as her friends knew that she was going to because she's just so uh, fascinating and she's got so much to offer the world. So back in the day, Matt and Kim recorded Kim uh, say, speaking aloud Roger's, Roger's review and Matt put it to images of the movie and he edited it. I mean, uh, wonderfully. It's... If you need a quick, and that's that's sort of what I want to get at. When Roger died um, in 2013, Matt posted the essay on Twitter. And this was like just when I was getting started making video essays for them. And it was, I, I had, it was like a, it was like school. It was like film school. In, in, in seven minutes, I knew exactly how video essays were supposed to work. I had seen his other work before. I'd seen his stuff on Terrence Malick and I'd seen Kevin's work. But something about this video essay made it so clear what the poetic potential and educational potential of a video essay was. I just, it suddenly just clicked. I had never seen it so clearly enunciated what a video essay was and what it could be. And something about it, it relates to the perfect pairing of Roger's review with the way that Matt edits it. Because at a certain point, Ebert, who is, he was always sort of in a tug of war with his own poetic side, where he he could write poetically and frequently did. And it was always breathtaking when he sort of embraced that fully. But there was something about him that I think nobody, nobody could quite, uh, uh, was, uh, the, the, mot juste, the, the, the perfect words. Ebert found the perfect words with a better average than any other working film critic. And in the stormy Monday, stormy Monday as a uh, review at a certain way, he, he sort of tells you like, all right, the movie is about this, but that doesn't tell you anything. It just gives you the broadest sketch. And then he just starts listing things that stu stuck out to him. He mentions, you know, uh, cigarette smoke and Melanie Griffith's cleavage and high heels and wet street. And he's just, it's this, it's this fetishistic checklist of things that made the movie more than the plot. And it's also one of those things that like, in the way that I relate to movies, a movie is often more than a list of events. It has to be. Otherwise, it would just be a book, um, not even a good one. <laughs> you know, it, it, the film has to communicate with you visually and orally, um, orally. <laughs> I always get that word. I always trip up on that one. But anyway, and so Kim simply saying it's about smoking and then to actually have Matt put the image right there and show you. It was, I mean, there was something about it. It was just this, there was just this clarity to this video essay. You know, you've got the sort of the soul music and the jazz music playing gently underneath the images. As Kim says, it's about the way that men's shoulders hunch or drop when they're told something they don't want to hear. And it was like, it's these three people working in perfect tandem with the movie. You've got Roger's words, Kim's voice, Matt's editing, and the film itself. And there was just something about the, the way they were communicating. When I remember that movie, I don't even think about the movie anymore. I think about this essay. There is an incredible quality to it that I think I honestly don't know how to put it into words because in in our conversation earlier, we were talking a little bit about the things that like you're, you're like technically not supposed to do when you do a video essay. And I think this actually breaks 
so many of those rules. We talk about Matt's editing. I mean, because it's not it's not just again, like go go watch this video. I say if you're not, you're really missing out. But like it, it, Kim isn't talking the whole time. Like and there are there are there are clips that aren't that aren't accompanied by like voiceover. And so Matt's making a lot a lot of choices here um, that really inform the entire experience of the piece. I can't think of a better tribute to Ebert's writing in a better way to showcase, as you say, the poetics of it. But it, if we think of the great films as a collection of moments. Gestures. Yeah. Like that's what Roger's doing in his in his writing. And so his, his, his writing style is mimicking like the poetics of cinema itself. And then the video essay is kind of a way of shining a light on that and unlocking it and revealing it in a new way. And it's, the, it's this beautiful relationship between all three that is just like really compelling. I 100% agree that essentially, I mean, Roger, Roger had this way of writing that, you know, with like a sentence fragment, he could sort of cut through himself and a movie and show you exactly where they intersect. He was, he had this sort of surgical precision. I think about the, the La Dolce Vita great movies essay and everybody talks about that one. I mean, justifiably, it's wonderful, but that thing where he's like, you know, now that I'm this age, this movie's about this to me because I'm this person. And it's like, geez, the, the the certainty of that. I mean, the sureness. It's it's. I mean, it's you, you like you want to you want to put it into a paper bag and huff it. It's like so. It's so. I mean, you just want to be near that kind of self assuredness, that that confidence to know precisely where you are and where the movie is in space and in relation to one another. It's uh, it's just so seductive. I mean, that's, you know, in, in a sense, that's what he was doing. I mean, he was undressing the mystique of, of films while also keeping them this sort of like fundamental allure. Because if he was going through all this, you could too, if you knew how to watch the movie and if you were patient enough to watch the movie. I mean, I think he's pretty much influenced like all of us who are interested in doing this this kind of stuff. He's so prolific that it's almost like in the way that we need Roger, not that we need him, but in the way that we turn to Roger to reveal the best about film, we almost turn to other critics to reveal the best about Rogers, but mm. I'm calling him Rogers if like he was like my uncle or something, but like Roger Ebert's, you know. Well, that, I mean, honestly, that when you, and you're on TV for that long, you do sort of impart a, a filial sense in people. But what I was going to say real quick is in that, because I'd be interested to know what, like, what you think of this, because I obviously don't know Matt Solar Sites at all, but Matt Solar Sites is actually someone who I turn to to help me find the best in Rogers' work because he tweets about tweets and talks about Rogers' work all the time. I think I read Roger's review of Return of the Jedi after Matt tweeted out. I think I know you know what I'm going to say, which is when Roger talks about how like when the when the Rancor is killed in in Return of the Jedi, and there's like a two second shot of a guy crying to his friend about the Rancor dying. And Roger Ebert writes about how this is like the beauty of the movies is that like in two seconds you can capture this. And so Matt is being a, like a student of Roger in the same way. And yeah, go, you're nodding. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 that Matt Matt is a, a very very perceptive student of of people, which has helped him, you know, in his life as a, as a critic and a writer and a creator. I, it's funny that that thing that Roger talking about the guy, the one second, like the 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 way that movies work on us, and I think Matt knows that. Beautifully, and I think Roger knew it as well. Uh, Matt wrote this really lovely piece for I think it was for Slant about Raiders of the Lost Ark. It was a uh, it was a roundtable. It was him and Keith Ulick and Odie Henderson. Odie I think wrote about Temple of Doom. Um, 
and Keith wrote about uh, Crystal Skull or some some something like this. But Matt talks about being at a diner and seeing these old, you know, uh, cowboy hat wearing Texans talking about Raiders of the Lost Ark and having this guy. He just sells it so beautifully. This image of this guy cracking himself up remembering a scene from Raiders of the Lost Ark, remembering the scene where the guy, pull, he's got the sword and he's flipping the sword and then Harrison Ford just shoots him to cut the sword fight out. And I can, I, I have that scene in my head, that scene of that guy in that diner describing, like I can, I can still hear the, the was like, uh, he says like, ah, and this old boy, like that's a phrase that's stuck in my head. This whole thing where Matt has drawn this conversation so beautifully and he's done it from the memory of what a movie did to somebody. And that's, I think, where he and Roger intersect and overlap. And that's why Matt is so good at, you know, at, at, at making us remember Roger Ebert's writing is because the two of them were tuned into what a movie could do. And I think Matt sort of thinks metaphysically that way, you know, if that's the right word for it. He sees the entirety of the, of the movie-going experience. Um, you know, he talks about the big picture a lot more than a lot of us do, um, you know, about what this movie means in the grand scheme of things. And, you know, Roger was like that too, but I think Roger wrote a little more, um, uh, I'll say selfishly, but I don't mean it as a pejorative. I mean, he wrote about his own experience because I think he only ever, um, wanted to be held accountable for his own experience. I don't think he liked speaking for other people. And I, it was, you know, it was a hard fought, uh, uh, position. I mean, that was a guy who really worked his way up from, from just, you know, just a guy with a couple of bad habits who worked at a newspaper to, the face of film criticism in the world. I mean, he turned film criticism into a serious pursuit to the rest of the world. I mean, obviously there are people who did the work, you know, the hard work, but he was the one who made it something that we all know, you know, I'm sure Jonathan Rosenbaum would sneer at me <laughs> if he heard me say that. But I mean, he was, you know, for better, for better and worse, he was, he was the one who made the act of watching a movie a sort of societally acceptable pursuit. It wasn't, it was a serious thing because he went on TV every week with Gene Siskel and talked about why it was a serious thing. And he wrote so eloquently about what movies did to him. And I just think that that was seductive to so many people. I mean, you know, criticism had been around forever. James Agee and Manny Farber and Lewis Ferguson and Molly Haskell and Andrew Saris and Pauline Kael and, and, and still the, the person who brought it to, you know, America's dinner tables was Roger Ebert, you know, because I think he had, he had the sensibility for it. And I think he also knew that the quickest way to sort of penetrate the kind of fog of art appreciation as a kind of a, you know, I, I think that there was a rarefied error to that to a lot of people was to simply say, here's what it did to me, you know, and he didn't discriminate against the things that he talked about. He would talk to you about E.T., which everybody saw, and then he would talk to you about Ron, which, you know, 1500 people saw. Um, and uh, and Matt, I think, you know, to me anyway, he was the one who stepped in to fill the void, you know, not not that he elected to, but to me, he was the one who wrote the way that Roger wrote and thought and felt the way that Roger thought and felt about filmmaking as a communal experience and a community building experience as an emotional tool. You know, Matt is, is unafraid to say that the big silly movie made him cry or made him feel things or made him excited and made him feel like a kid again, blah, blah, blah. You know, there's, 
and I'm certainly guilty of this as a regular reviewer, there is a huge amount of cynicism involved in being a film critic. I mean, it just wears on you. It does. It simply does. <laughs> There's almost no way to know how the machine works and still admire the machine. Matt never, never lets on in his writing that he's grown cynical of, of any of the process. I mean, you know, you read his reviews and it's, you know, he still sounds just as excited to be seeing a film as he ever did. You know, it's, I, I love the guy. I always will. I always have. I admire him so much. And, you know, and that's in this essay, that's, you know, this, this, he gave me my marching orders. This was, you know, in seven minutes, here's how you make a video essay, you know, and he obviously told me things also, you know, we had many, many emails about the sort of rule book for the unloved, but seeing it in action was quite another thing entirely. It was like, God damn, the way that this essay makes me feel, makes me remember that movie, makes me remember Roger's writing, makes me remember these performances, makes me think of all these other things from my life. I was like, that's, that's it. That's it right there. So concise, six, seven minutes. And that's how you make like a perfect video essay. I think on that note, it's a fitting end to our conversation. And I think I might be going to an event with Jonathan Rosenbaum. Ah. We'll be speaking tomorrow. So I promise I won't tell him. Please don't. Uh, <laughs> tell him what you said. But Scout, thank you so much for a truly wonderful conversation and for all the work you for you create. Uh, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This was a blast. Thank you once again to Scout for agreeing to come on the show and for a really engaging, lively conversation. Uh, I will link to Scout's Patreon page, which uh, includes links to all of his work um, at thevideoessay.com. Our guest on our next episode, which will air two weeks from today, is Lee Singer, the UK-based film critic and video essayist. So be sure once again to go to thevideoessay.com to find your homework. And please be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes and Spotify and follow us on Twitter at Video Essay Pod or like us on Facebook, the Video Essay Podcast. Thank you so much. Don't forget to please also send in email with suggestions, tips, feedback, video essays, all that good stuff. Thanks so much and peace out.